Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Numbers this morning. If you want a specific chapter, we will eventually land on Numbers chapter 21. And if you see the notes page that's in your bulletin, it looks huge. I've already had a couple people confront me about it and be like, wow, what's going on? Don't worry. We'll be out of here by 3 o'clock at least. Um, I can guarantee you that much. Um, but no, uh, I'm excited about this. Um, do we have any history buffs in the room? Like you just really, wow, nice. I'm glad to see that. Uh, one thing that I enjoy is history. That's one of the reasons why we're kind of going through this series is because I love looking at like the historical context of it all and seeing things that go on. Like uh, currently I'm reading the book of Esther and I love the historical story of the 300 Spartans. And it blew my mind one day when I was reading and I was like, wait a minute, the, the king in Esther, his name is Xerxes, uh, Hazarus, but it's actually Xerxes. And the king that took on the 300 Spartans is Xerxes, like, wow, my mind just blew at that moment. Uh, because it's like, hey, the Bible and history actually go along together. They don't separate from each other. And that's why it's important that we know the historical context of the books of the Old Testament. And also, as we've been looking, God has a message for us. That throughout the Old Testament, these aren't passages to just get over so that we can get to the good stuff. The Old Testament is good stuff. That when Jesus uh, rose from the dead and he's walking down the road to Emmaus, he is preaching to the two disciples and he starts with Moses and the prophets and all of that points to who he is. There's no Galatians, there's no Ephesians, there's no New Testament books yet. He's using the Old Testament to say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that has come to save the world. The Old Testament points to me. And so that's why we are going through it. Stephen, on the day that he was going to be stoned, he is using the Old Testament to proclaim who Jesus is. Because I graduated from high school in 2006. And whenever I graduated, I got a bunch of cards for my graduation and people put in that like a lot of advice that they wanted to give me. And even just this morning, I heard some people talking, I'm eavesdropping on conversations and I heard some people talking about, man, if I could go back and talk to myself, I would tell myself one thing, take care of my body. And it's like, if I could go back and tell my younger self, I mentioned this already, I would tell myself, marry Heather earlier. Don't waste so much of your time dragging your feet, just Go marry her, it's gonna be the best decision of your life. And so whenever I graduated, people are writing in these cards and they're giving me advice. They're saying things like, hey, don't really worry about choosing a career because uh, really all that jobs care about is a degree. And so just get a degree. So I chose the easiest degree I could think of, physical education. Others were like, hey, you know what? Just follow Christ and he will guide you through everything that's gonna happen. There were a lot of advice that was given to me during that time. And a lot of it came from personal experience, from their history. And it's important that we know history, but it's also important that we learn from history. Because there's this uh, philosopher and his name is George Santayana. And he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 
You've maybe heard it more commonly said, those who don't front learn from history are destined to repeat it or are destined to do it again, that if, if we don't look at history and learn from their mistakes, we are going to follow in the same problem. And it's kind of like Carl, I almost thought he was stealing my sermon during his meditation, but it's almost like he understood it because it's like, oh, you know, it was better back then and I'm gonna complain about where things are now. And it's like, no, we look at history and we learn from it. And that's what, Moses is doing in the book of Numbers today. He is sharing the history of the Israelite people with us because remember, just real quick backstory, you have Genesis, God creates everything. Man and woman sin, they're kicked out of the garden. Then there's this prophecy that is gonna happen where God says that she will strike the serpent's head and he will bite her heel. And through that prophecy, he is talking about Jesus. And then later on, we come to this man named Abraham who is old without children and God makes a promise to him. You're gonna be the father of many nations. You're gonna have an abundant offspring. You're gonna have a land. You are going to be my people. And then from there on, we're seeing the story of that offspring. And so they end up going to Egypt. They get put into oppression and they're made slaves of the Egyptians. And so then God says, let my people go. And they don't. And so you get the 10 plagues. And finally, they are freed through the Passover, the, the death of the firstborn that does not have the blood over the doorpost. And so then they're free and God promises them, you're going to inhabit the promised land and they are working their way there. And God says, I wanna be with you. So he says, build a tabernacle for me so that I can dwell among you. And so they do that. And then he gives them a whole lot of different commands as well in the book of Leviticus, which we covered last week of, this is what my heart is like. I am holy and I want my people to be holy. So this is how you are going to live. This is how you, you are going to be able to enter into relationship and worship of me. And this is how you as my people are going to govern yourselves. And then we end up here in the book of Numbers where what we are going to see is a generation get wiped out completely. And Moses is writing to their descendants, telling them, learn from history. Because if you don't learn from history, you're destined to repeat it. So get your pens ready, shake out the hands so that you can write really fast because we're gonna breeze through this, but we're gonna open up in a word of prayer first. So Father God, we come before you. And God, I'm so grateful that you have given us your word and God, that you have just um, protected it throughout all these years. When people are trying to take it away and just trying to discredit it and everything like that, God, you are over it all and it is your word. And so I pray that as we're in your word today, we see that even from the beginning, you had a plan for where we are at right now to be able to boldly and with confidence come before you. And so God, I pray that you open up our hearts to hear what you have to say. And God, I pray that your message is proclaimed this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. All right, get ready. The book of Numbers, it's titled Numbers, pretty common there. 
which is taken from two censuses that are in the book. You have the first one in the first 10 chapters, and what it is is God tells Moses, take a census of every man over the age of 20. And then as we kind of alluded to, there's this entire destruction of that generation. And then there's a second census taken at the very end of the book of the new generation. It also goes by other names. It's called the book of murmuring, the book of wandering, the book of journeying, or the fourth book of Moses, because the next one, the author, as we said, the first five books of the Bible are all written by Moses. The dating The events occur during the second month of the year 1445 BC, and it spans 40 years roughly, all the way to 1406 BC. The events take place exactly one year and one month after the people exited Egypt. It's in the first month of the second year after the people left Egypt. It spans 40 years, But a majority of that time of the book is not on all 40 years. For example, the first 10 chapters only cover 19 days. The next 26 chapters cover 38 years, where 11 of those are 38 years, and the final 15 chapters of the book only cover five months. So it really just breezes through all of this stuff that is happening. The audience is that second generation. Learn from the mistakes of your fathers. Because of the things they did, you now are fatherless because they had to wander and spend all this time and they all eventually got wiped out. Learn from their mistakes. Trust God. The main characters, you have Moses, you have his brother Aaron, you have his sister Miriam, and then again, you have the entire nation of Israel. And obviously, I didn't put this one on there because this is the overarching main character of all the Bible, God. He's a main character there. The main events, you have God telling Moses to take that census. The first census accounted for 603,550 men over the age of 20. So that's not counting women, and that's not counting people 19 years or younger. So they believe the number is far higher. We're talking possibly two to three million people right now. That also did not include the Levites. So out of the 12 tribes of Israel, 11 of them are being counted for. The Levites, they were not a part of this census because they were not to receive an inheritance whenever they enter into the promised land. Because so far right now, God is saying, you are getting to go into the promised land. You are my people. You are being faithful to me, even though eh, that's kind of sketchy. They've been complaining already. They've been questioning God. They've been like, can we just go back to Egypt? God is still saying, you can enter into the promised land, and so we are going to allot it by tribe, so take a census so that we know how big each tribe is. You have uh, them leaving Mount Sinai, so all of the book of Leviticus happened at Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to Moses and the people of Israel, and now they are getting ready to leave Mount Sinai. The problem is, is that the people complain. As Carl mentioned, there are multiple 
complaints that they do. They complain about the food. All we get is manna. We're tired of manna. They complain about the way. They have to go through the desert, through the wilderness. And they're like, we're tired and it's hot. And it was better when we were in Egypt because at least we had air conditioning and comfortable beds, which was not true at all. They complained about giants in the promised land. They complained about their leadership, about Moses and Aaron leading them. They complained eventually about God's leadership. And so then when God says, because you're complaining, there's going to be a punishment, they complain about the punishment. It's like, you know why you're in trouble right now for complaining? Like every parent that has a child that can speak understands this concept of like, why am I in timeout again? Well, it's because you complain. And then they start complaining. And it's like, do you want more time? You can stay in your room until you graduate, mister, because girls are angels. So it's all only boys. They complain about being in the desert. And then again, they complain about the food that they are given. So you have a lot of complaining, but what you're going to see continually if you read through the book of Numbers is God continually provides. Even though they complain, God provides for them. He provides for them manna from heaven. He provides for them quail to eat, which ends up being a plague and they all get sick, but he still provides for them. He provides water from a rock because they are thirsty. Remember, we talked about there being two to three million people at this time. It would take, I read this, 50 railway cars of manna and 12 million gallons of water per day to provide for these people over a span of 40 years. And God provides for them. You see throughout the book, the provision and the faithfulness of God. You have, if you are a child of like Christian education or Sunday school or VBS, you know the song. You have 12 men went to spy on Canaan. I'm a terrible singer. 10 were bad and two were good. Nobody's going to join me in on that. That is quite all right. I'll make a fool of myself up here. And then it's like, what did they see when they got to Canaan? 10 were bad, two were good. Some saw giants big and tall. Some saw grapes and clusters fall. I'm sorry. You can turn down the hearing aids if you have them, but we'll be done for now. But you have the 12 men that are going to spy on Canaan and they see, they're like, oh my goodness, like the people are huge and the grapes are massive that we can't even hardly carry them. And what are we gonna do? And 10 of them come back and they give a terrible report. They're like, there's no way we can take this land. Two of them come back and say, we have God with us. Don't listen to those guys. God is guiding us. We can go in and take the land because we have God on our side and the people listen to the 10 bad spies. And that's what brings on the punishment that takes on a vast majority of the book of Numbers from that chapter 10 or 11 all the way to chapter 21 is they spend 38 years wandering through the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land. They got all the way up to the promise of God. God said, I'm gonna give you a land. They get all the way up to that promised land and they see it and they're like, you know what? God led me this far. I don't know if he's gonna be faithful enough though. So let, let's go ahead and turn around and go back. They actually were like, let's appoint for us leaders that will take us back to Egypt, take us back into oppression, take us back into slavery. 
It's like, you, you know, when we think about it, it's better to be a slave to an oppressive ruler than to be free under an all-loving God. That's pretty much what they were saying. God, thanks for getting us this far, but we don't trust you to get us any further. Don't we say that to God so many times in our life? God, when I look back at my life, I can see all the faithfulness that you have had in my life, but I don't trust you with this next thing. I don't trust you in this. Again, if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. And so we see that the Israelites are seeing this and they're like, let's go back to Egypt. And so God disciplines them and says, for 38 years, you are going to be wandering through the wilderness. And he says, an entire generation is going to pass away. 603,550 men, except for two. So 603,548 men are going to die because they did not trust God and they rebelled against him. I heard it said that averages 40 funerals a day for 40 years. That many people dying. 40 deaths a day. Joshua and Caleb were the two good spies. They were the ones that said, let's follow God. He's been faithful to us. Let's, let's keep our eyes fixed on him. And they were told, you can enter into the promised land. So they're wandering around and they're complaining and they're bitter and Moses has had it. And so God says, speak to a rock and I will provide water for them. And Moses says, you know what? And he takes his staff and he strikes the rock, disobeying God. And so we see that Moses is not able to enter into the promised land. God says, you can lead them all the way up to the promised land. I'll even let you look into the promised land, but you will not enter it because you have also disobeyed me. You have people complaining about serpents coming to bite them because, again, they're complaining. You have Balaam and a talking donkey, which is just a really interesting story. And I have a lot of comments about if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through anybody, but we'll just leave it at that. You have Moses's successor, Joshua, being chosen because Moses can't go into the promised land. So Joshua, one of the good spies, is chosen to lead the people, which leads us into our next book of Joshua. Not our next book, two books. And then you have the Israelites, again, arriving at the edge of the promised land at the plains of Moab, the eastern edge of the Jordan, as they get ready to enter the promised land. So the locations of the book is you start at Mount Sinai, they leave and they go to Kadesh Barnea, which is part of, or not part of, but it's like the southern edge of Israel, the promised land. That's where they rebel and complain against God. So then they wander in the wilderness before going back to Kadesh Barnea. And then finally, they arrive at the plains of Moab. The main theme is we see three things. You see continually, we've hit on it, the disobedience of God's people. Continually rebelling, complaining, turning against God. We mentioned it also, that you see continually the faithfulness of God. And in the end of this, you see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Remember, about 500 years earlier, Abraham is given the covenant in Genesis 12, verse 
1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will honor, dishonor him who curses you. I should just read it. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see partially the fulfillment of that because they were given a land. He says, go to the land that I will show you. And they are receiving Canaan, the promised land. He says, I will make you a great nation. At the end of Genesis, 70 people of the descendants of Jacob enter into Egypt. And now we have two to three million people entering into the promised land. You have a blessing and make your name great. And you see this throughout the book that God continually blesses them with manna, with water. He continually provides for them and is faithful to them. And then he says, if anybody curses you, I will curse you. And that whole don talking donkey part, he was told, Balaam was told, curse the people of Israel. And Balaam responds with this quote, I will curse those who curse you. And so he is unable to lay a cursing upon them. And instead he three times blesses them. Prophecies, it has one messianic prophecy and that is in one of those uh, blessings that Balaam is giving to Balak. And he says in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Ser also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. That is talking about Jesus right there. You have a messianic prophecy. Last thing we'll look at here, the typologies. You have the manna, sorry, skipped one. You have the water from the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 talks about we all drink from the same water that came from the rock, which is Christ. You have manna, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John chapter six, which again, the people continually complain about the manna. You have a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night in which God is leading the people of Israel just as Jesus leads us. You have six cities of refuge in Hebrews chapter six talks about Jesus is our city of refuge. You have a red heifer sacrifice. And then where we're gonna really hone in for the remainder of our time here is you have the bronze serpent in which we see in John chapter three. So if you wanna to flip to Numbers chapter 21, we're also gonna be in John chapter three as we finish out seeing how Jesus is in the book of Numbers. And so what's happened is we just kind of recapped it all. They all are now done wandering in the wilderness and they're about to head back to the promised land and they start complaining. They start grumbling again. This is the new generation that is now coming up and they are not learning from their father's mistakes. And so they're about to enter in. Aaron has just died. There is a king in Canaan that they are going to go to battle with and they make this promise to God in verse two. If you will indeed give this people into my hand, I will devote their cities to destruction. 
So they're saying, God, give this king into our hands and we will go and we'll, we'll wipe out the cities. And God hears them. And God provides yet again for their victories. But again, what we see is what happened to their fathers, the wandering, the quail that brought on a plague, all the complaining that they've done, they are not learning from it. I mean, we're talking about like one generation removed. Like, you know, we have, not politically speaking here, but we have people who are looking back at things that happened a long time ago, and they're trying to change some of that. That's like a hundred, like generations ago. What we're seeing right here is the generation that came up after them, and they're not learning from it. They saw the wandering, they saw the plagues, they saw everything that happened and they did not remember the past. And so therefore they start to repeat it because in verse four, it says from Mount Seir, from Mount Seir, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Again, literally a generation removed. Their father suffered for this very same thing, and they are doing it also. Why are we not in Egypt? It was wonderful there. It was like an oasis compared to where we're at. The people were wonderful to us. Can we just go back to Egypt? Because where we're at, we have no water. God's provided water for them. We have no food, but notice they actually have food. Did you notice that it says, we have no food, we have no water, and the food that we do have, we don't like? And so it's like, God, you're not providing for us, and actually we see that you're providing for us. We just don't like it. We don't like your way, God. So we're gonna complain against what you've done. They're committing the same offenses against God. And notice also that it says, after everything God has provided here, they almost go beyond what their fathers did because they are complaining against God and Moses. Their fathers, for the most part in the past, have complained against Moses. But here, it specifically says they complained against God also. It's not just God, that guy that you put in charge of us is not doing a very good job. It's also God, you know what? You're pretty terrible yourself. We don't like what you're doing for us. So can you just send us back? They are rebelling against God and Moses. And honestly, when I look at the Israelites, I kind of understand where they're coming from, from a human perspective. From a sympathetic kind of like, I, I, I want to understand, and I, I can kind of get it. I mean, imagine if you were born in the wilderness. If all you've known is sand, heat, and like just exhaustion. Like, hey, today we're packing up and we're moving, and then you're going to set down, and then today you're packing up and moving. I mean, imagine if that was the way that you grew up. If you ate the same thing every single day, like I get on kicks, and I love me some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for like six days in a row. And then that seventh day, it's like, I'm done with this. I don't want another peanut butter and jelly sandwich. On to the next thing. But here, for their lives, they have been eating the same thing over and over. They've been traveling nonstop. They're hot. They're tired. 
And no matter what the circumstances are, they're called to remain faithful to God, but they're having a moment of, well, not a moment of weakness. They are not doing that, though. I can understand where they're coming from because my life has not been that rough, and I still have instances where I fall prey to that same thing. God, why did you do this? God, why are you allowing this? God, why is this thorn in my side right now? And honestly, it's not that big of a thorn. But yet here they've done this and they rebel against God. It's one thing to kind of be disgruntled with your circumstances, to kind of be like, God, I'm just gonna be straight up honest with you right now. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm struggling trusting you. God, the, the way that everything's going, my faith is struggling. It's, it, I'm, I'm gonna say that it's okay to be in that place as long as your heart does not rebel against God. To be in a difficult time and be like, because even Elijah, he did it, where he had just ministered to the prophets of Baal and just like witnessed that amazing thing. And then he runs 25 miles and he's on a mountain and he's being fed by ravens. And he's like, God, I'm the only one that's left. God, there's nobody else worshiping you. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. There's, there's nobody else. And he lets his heart be known to God. But we don't sin when we do that. We remind ourselves that God is God and that we are to be faithful to him. You read through the Psalms and you see David crying out his heart like, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you turned your back on me? God, where are you when I cry aloud? Why is it that in the middle of the night I'm waking up and I'm calling out and it sounds like nobody is there? But he always comes back to, this is the one thing I will do. I will remind myself of how great is your faithfulness. And so Paul actually tells us in Philippians chapter four, verse six, he says that through prayer and petition, let your request be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything. So we let God know the desires of our heart. But what the people of Israel did here is they rebelled against God. And it says in verse six, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. That is literally my worst nightmare coming to life. I mean, like, I'm not exaggerating. My worst nightmare that I can remember having is I wake up, I look outside my bed, and there are snakes all around. They're evil. Like, I don't trust them. And here, they're living with it. And it's biting many of them. And notice that it says, many people died. You see, the condition of Israel is the same condition that we have. That so often we are rebelling against God that as the people of Israel are getting bit by physical serpents and they are dying, we have been bit by sin. We have been bit spiritually by sin so much so that all of us are destined for death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul says, the sting of sin is death. Nope, sorry. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't want you to miss this point. Our condition before God is complete hopelessness. I mean, think about the Israelites here. They have serpents going throughout the entire camp, biting people and they're dying. 
And think of all the ways that they might have tried saving themselves. Oh, put a little ointment on it. Just rub a little dirt on it. Cut off the arm. Whatever it is, it's like we're going to save ourselves, and they're unable to do that. That's our condition spiritually. When sin bites us, when we have the sting of death, which is sin, in our lives, it doesn't matter how hard we try, we're not able to save ourselves. Oh, just give a little bit more to the church. That doesn't make you right with God. Ah, oh, just attend five more services a year. Ah, oh, just open the door for an elderly person a little bit more. Don't cuss as much. Give up those vices. If all you're doing is trying to change the outward, which is le what Leviticus was showing us, it does not cleanse the inside. We are still spiritually dead. We are still headed towards death as Ephesians 2.12 tells us we are without hope and without God we're on a one-way ticket to hell and there's no getting off the plane there is nothing that we are in that spiritual condition as the Israelites were so were we we were headed for death that everything else we do as Ecclesiastes told us it is all vanity you know, I was reading Luke chapter 17 the other day, and I came across this passage, and it, it kind of honestly insulted me a little bit. Have you ever read the Bible? And it's like, hey, I take offense to that. But then you realize, eh, God's right. It says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward? You will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then this is the part that kind of hurt. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That word there for unworthy, it could also be translated good for nothing. That's when I got insulted. Because I kind of was like, you know what, God? I get on a stage, and I'm not saying this to be prideful. My pride got in the way a little bit, though, just transparency here. It's like, God, I get on a stage, and I preach your word. I pray. I read. I do. I, God, let me tell you all the things that I do for you. And it's like, whoa, I'm comparing myself to other people. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, who is perfect. Remember last week, we saw the standard of God, which is pure holiness and perfection. And when I take my good deeds and measure them up to the perfect standard of God, they're good for nothing. I am unworthy. I am a unworthy servant. And so these Israelites are complaining against God and God is sending the serpents to bite them and they are dying. And we too, on our own, will always be unworthy. We too are hopeless and without God. But God shows mercy in this moment. He gives them mercy and he gives them healing. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
So the serpents are wreaking havoc, they're biting people, they're dying, and so they repent, they turn back to God, they confess their sin, and they say, we have sinned against you and against Moses, so help us. And God does that. He says, build the serpent, put it on a deal. And if you've ever followed an ambulance, you've seen this symbol. I mean, again, here we are centuries later, millennia later, and we are still using the symbol of a cross with a serpent working its way up it for the sign of healing. Because all the people had to do is when they get bit, they look to that, that serpent and they would be healed. Fast forward about 1400 years and we see the lineage of these people and again, they're under the oppression of the Romans. And this guy has come along who is doing some miraculous things. And so one of the religious leaders of the time wants to have a meeting with him. So he meets him at night. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these th signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responded, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and the, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how then can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And here we go. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus is looking back to something that Nicodemus would have been all familiar with. They would have known the story. This would have been one of the first things they would have memorized as he was go growing up as a Jewish boy. They memorized, we think we can't memorize, they memorized entire books. They memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. He knew this story. And Jesus is saying, you remember back there with the Israelites when they were being bitten and they were, they were dying physically? So also all mankind is dying spiritually and they cannot save themselves. But God provided a way. And he lifted up the serpent so that all the people had to do. When they were bit, they had to believe God. That what he said is true. That I can't cut my arm off and save myself. I can't remove the venom. I can't go see a shaman. I can't go see a doctor. There's only one way for me to be saved. And that is for me to look at the serpent. So they had to believe first off. And then secondly, they had to obey. I have to believe that what God is saying is true. And then I have to actually do it. And Jesus is saying, just like they did back then, so us too today. That is the only way we will be saved. That we believe that what God has said is true. That there's no amount of religious good that I can do. There's no amount of anything I can do to save myself. I believe God at his word. 
that the Son of Man was lifted up. That all I have to do is I believe Jesus is the only way to be right with God, and then I obey, and I respond. Because I think that the world today has a really messed up view of belief. Because we have this view of belief being knowledge. Like, I believe Abraham Lincoln existed. I don't really believe it, I just, I have a knowledge of it. It doesn't change my life a whole lot. But belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to God that changes my life. And so it's not just a, I believe there is a God, because James says you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons do that. And at least they have a proper understanding of who God is. They shudder at it. So just saying you believe is nothing. But to look upon Jesus and be obedient to him, that is what God calls for us to do. It's nothing on our part to save ourselves. I mean, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. But look at the cross and believe what Christ did makes you right with God. But that belief comes with obedience to God. Because I'll be honest, if your life is not being transformed to what God calls you, I'll challenge you, you don't really believe. You have the head knowledge. You might know what happened, but it's not a true inner belief. Because God says, I came to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I came to take you from death and turn you into life. And throughout the entire New Testament, we're being reminded, therefore, give up the things of your past. Because you have looked upon Jesus and been saved, die to your former things. Be made new. We're told, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, the the Israelites looked for healing, possibly, I'm reading into it here, in every other way that they could. There was only one way for them to find healing, and it was through the serpent lifted up. People today are looking for healing spiritually in so many ways. Oh, I'm just going to, I hear it said today, I'm going to focus on myself first. I'm going to spend some me time. I'm going to self-heal. I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to try and find inner peace. It's only going to come from one place, Jesus Christ. That the only way to find healing from your brokenness, the only way to find healing from your sinful past, the only way to find healing in this life, go ahead and look everywhere else. Paul, or not Paul, Solomon's already told us, it's all going to be vanity. It is not going to satisfy. There's only one place that we can find healing, and that's in Jesus Christ. Doug opened us up with it. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you looking in all that other stuff. But Jesus came so that he may give us life and life abundantly. You want healing for brokenness? You want healing in your life? There's only one place you'll find it. And that's in the work of Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you again that you provide the way. 
God, we thank you even that as we see through the book of Numbers, you were faithful to your people there. We see your faithfulness over and over in our lives today. But God, even though we can look back and see your faithfulness, there are so many times that we question your goodness here and now, and so many times that we question, are you actually going to be there for us now? And so God, I pray that you just help us through that, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, that we cast off everything that hinders us and distracts us, and that we run with perseverance the race that you have marked before us, that we look to you, and see that you are the only way for us to have healing. God, I pray that we just live out of that. So God, work in our hearts the way that only you can and help us be your people and live for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen.